The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Psychology down at San Diego State University named Jean Twinge. She studies generational differences. And uh, I read one of her books, and in that book she reported this. This is what Professor Twinge said. She said, in the 1950s, only 12% of teenagers agreed with the statement, I'm an important person. 12% in the 1950s. 12% of teenagers agreed with the statement, I'm an important person. Okay. By the year 2000, 50 years later, not that long in the scope of things, by the year 2000, 80% of teenagers agreed with the statement, I am an important person. Now, whether or not you feel like you're an important person, that's fascinating, isn't it? That's fascinating. Because we now have to ask, do you believe you're an important or not because it's true? Or because you were told something by your cultural moment that you believed about yourself? Because personally, I don't see why the teenagers of the 2000s are way more important than the teenagers of the 50s were, do you? And yet they saw themselves in such a different light. And you just realize here, even their very understanding of themselves was formed in some way by the message of their cultural moment. And as you can see by that, just that one change in 50 years, your cultural moment is changing and telling you different things about yourself. So I'm just telling you all that to add to your skepticism. (laughs) Can you trust every voice in your cultural moment? Can you ultimately even trust yourself? And now it's time for a little bit of honesty. Have you ever been a total fool? I have. I'll come, I'll come clean. I have. Let's make it worse. Have you ever lied to someone? Yeah, you have. And worst of all, have you ever lied to yourself? You have. And so I ask again. Who are you going to trust? Should you serve as your ultimate authority for truth and for hope? I would say that would be a bad source. So all that's to say, thinking about faith, about truth, about hope, about authority, I think we really need what this text is offering. You and I need an anchor for our souls that's outside of ourselves, which is absolutely true, which is worthy of all our faith, and which will be good for the hope that it promises. We long for this. We need this. The author of this text is saying, here it is, which is really exciting. We're continuing with our study through the book of Hebrews. As we've seen, it's written to a congregation of marginalized Jewish Christians. 
So they're suffering, they're experiencing hard times, and in the midst of all that, they are tempted and influenced to place their faith and their hope in an authority other than Jesus. And so what the author of this text is just trying so hard to inspire them to hold fast to their confession of Christ despite the difficulty, to hang on to the hope of who he is. And so the question of, of this passage is, how are God's people, how are these people, how are we going to keep going, keep believing God's promises even in the midst of terrible suffering? And the answer is we need to hear the encouragement of God himself. We need to hear God's encouragement. And that's what these verses are about. God encouraging us himself so that we will hold fast in putting all our hope in Christ. So I want to see four things with you today. Number one, just remember the call. That's in verses 11 to 12. Remember the call that we see in this letter. We'll see that in verses 11 to 12. And then we're going to look at three encouragements that are meant to help us in the midst of doubt, difficulty, suffering, and despair. Three encouragements. There's an encouragement of an example, an encouragement of God's purpose, and finally the encouragement of the anchor. So the call, and then encouragements, example, purpose, anchor. Here we go. First of all, the call, verses 11 to 12. There's two main kind of exhortations from the speaker here in 11 to 12. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Just to walk through that a little bit, we desire. The Greek there is like, it's a, it's a pleading. It's, it's really pastoral. It's him looking you in the eye and saying, come on, hang on to Christ. Come on, don't quit. Don't let go. Hang on to Christ. We desire. And then look, it says, each one of you. We don't want to lose any of you, to any counterfeit hopes other than Christ. Come on, hang on to Christ and then show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So it's this diligence. We saw this last week, right? Like, work hard to ponder Christ and trust him and put, put your hope in him. Look at how beautiful he is, eyes on Christ, but, but you see, he's saying, make sure you hold fast to your hope in Christ. See, the, the author knows something, and I'm learning it as I'm studying this letter. A, a major way you drift away from Christ, or even sometimes, as we saw last week, apostatize away from Christ, is to no longer have any hope in Christ and look for hope somewhere else. That's what the author's been saying. And, uh, you know, I remembered this week, John Calvin, that great theologian, he said, true faith always goes hand in hand with hope. That's why this is so important. Faith and hope are, um, they're not really two separate things you can totally divorce. Genuine faith has hope in it. A, a genuine hope has faith in it. Now, let me show you this one foundational verse in Hebrews. Look at Hebrews eleven six. It's all right here, faith, truth, and hope. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. That's God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those 
who seek him. So first of all, faith, right? We've thought about this. Faith, that act of the mind and the heart to trust. So you can't please God if you don't trust God. That's just core for how a relationship with God works. He is truth and he speaks and, and he is honored by those who believe him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. On the flip side, if you put your faith in God's word, that pleases him. Pleases him. And faith believes, as we've seen, in the truth of God. That's the authority. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. So you've got to believe here then that the God of the Bible is God. I believe that's true. And so, okay, we're willing to go that far. Faith in the truth of who God is and his word. But look at this third part. If you're going to draw near to God, you must believe that he exists. And what else do you need to believe? He, what? Rewards those who seek him. God is insisting that you know that no one who ever truly comes to him is left disappointed. He's never flaked or failed on anyone who legitimately trusts in him. He rewards those who seek him. And that's the same thing as hope, isn't it? There's a reward. Good is coming. And so faith and hope go together, which is why you have to be so earnest, so diligent about putting your hope in Christ. Because if you just say, yeah, I believe Jesus, that thing is kind of true, but your hope is somewhere else, you and I both know who you're going to follow. You will follow your hope. Be earnest to keep your hope in Christ. And then the second exhortation from 11 to 12 is don't be sluggish. Remember, we, we learned that word last week, no thros. Every once in a while, you got to throw a Greek word out there, right? Spiritually lazy. And, and, and what we're seeing is that suffering, continued suffering, can influence a spiritual laziness because it, it's painful. There's a cost to following Christ. And I don't care if that's explicitly like persecution, and we see that as an obvious cost for following Christ. But even just a chronicle physical suffering, that, that's a test. You know that. Some of us know that very well. It's a, it's a test of faith. Do you still love me? Do you still have good things for me, even when I'm asking you and asking you, and I'm not yet receiving answers to what I'm asking for? And so sometimes you can go, well, maybe he's not listening. And, and you, listen, the Bible invites you to lament with faith. God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Ask hard questions. But you're still going to him in that, in that case. You're still looking to him. But sometimes spiritual sluggishness is just, well, I'm going to look somewhere else. And you're not, you're not drawing near to him anymore. You become lazy about it. As we saw last week, that's dangerous. So don't be sluggish. Don't put your hope somewhere else. This call your hope in Christ. That's what genuine faith does. And then he says, let's imitate those who've gone before. And here he starts the encouragement, right? We want to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So let's put those two things together. Faith. We've seen that. You're going to trust the authority of God and his word. You're going to trust Christ. Faith. And then that other word we don't like so much, but it's very important. Faith and 
patience. How many of you are like, oh, I love being patient? Anyone? What's your fa- I, my favorite thing is to want something and never seem to get it. I love that so much. Now, I know some people like this, and they, it frustrates me just a little bit. I can wait. Like, ah, ah, and it shows my spiritual immaturity. Uh, but look, this, this, is, this, this is the normal for the Christian life. Old Testament, New Testament this is a normal for being God's people. God will give you promises. You will believe them, and you will, you will taste and see that the Lord is good, and there will be a part of it where you don't have it yet, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And sometimes it seems like you're waiting forever. But as the author of Hebrews looks back and looks at all the storyline of God's word, he sees example after example. He's going to bring one up in this passage. Listen, everybody who trusts God and waited, they received the promise. Their hope came true. Their hope came true. So he's encouraging you. And that's where we start to move now. The call to hopeful endurance. We're going to see this now in the encouragement of the example. The encouragement of the example. So here's, here we start our encouragements. Look back to the examples the author's already said. And then in verses 13 to 15, he mentions Abraham. And I'm going to point out here, verse 15. Actually, let's, let's go and see it. Uh, Hebrews 6, 13 to 15. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, we'll get to that, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, what? Obtained the promise. So if you're sitting here thinking, Oh, I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and it's hard, and I'm still waiting, the author of Hebrews would like to introduce you to Abraham. Because you probably haven't waited as long as he did. <laughs> He waited a long time. Now, you know if you read Genesis, Abraham is far from perfect. Praise God, that helps me out, because so am I. And yet, he showed legitimate faith in God's promises through a long wait of many difficulties and challenges. And quite frankly, some of the difficulties and challenges he endured with faith would make us sweat. And he made it. He had a genuine faith that endured in believing God's promises. And the author of Hebrews wants you to see he obtained the promise. God never lets his people down. Well, you might think, well, good for Abraham. How does that help me? Do you remember what? Of course you don't. Maybe you do. I'll give you the benefit of that. I'm sure you remember Hebrews 2.16, right? Hebrews 2.16. Let's put it on the screen for me and a couple others who forgot it. Um, Look at what the author said. Jesus helps. Jesus helps. Who does he help? The offspring of Abraham. And now maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, so what again? I'm not an ethnic Jew. Oh, my friends, look at what the New Testament says, Galatians 3. Look at Galatians 3, 7 to 9. Galatians 3, 7 to 9. Something you need to know. Know then. It is those of what? Is those of faith who are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So right now, 
If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ to make you right with God, to bring you to God as a child, if your faith is in Christ, you are a child of Abraham. And you are the kind of person Jesus helps. He helps you. He helps you keep going. And so this encouragement is meant to be, listen, you have, a, you, have a, you have a physical lineage, but you have a spiritual lineage. And in a way, in a way, Abraham is like your spiritual father in a way because he's like that first and core example of someone following the Lord by faith through patience and trial. And so the author here is saying, listen, just like your spiritual father received the promise, so you who have trusted Christ, you will receive the promise. You will. Your hope is sure. So we're seeing the example of Abraham that against all odds, God always keeps his promise. He always keeps his promise. Um, you can see this in the, in the micro story just of Abraham's life, how he waited and received promises. You can also see it in the whole story of Israel, which I think in a way is even more fascinating because you know, right, uh, the Bible is, it is one book, but it's more than one book, right? Collection of 66 books. And, and because of that benefit of it being a library of books, you see the storyline of the people of Israel written by different authors over hundreds of years, and so it's not like one author over in a corner is making up promises and then showing you a story where the guy received the promise, but it's just him all by himself. Oh, no. You have promises made and different authors recording hundreds of years of history, and you get to see promises kept. Abraham and Sarah had Isaac against all odds, according to God's promise. Abraham's descendants became a nation against all odds, according to God's promise. The nation escaped from Egypt against all odds, according to God's promise. That nation inherited the land against all odds, according to God's promise. They even returned from exile against all odds, according to God's promise. Are you seeing a pattern? What does God always do? He keeps his promises. He keeps his word what is the core authority you are going to trust your life to? Trust his word. Trust his word. Jesus himself said this. God's word is truth. This needs to be your ultimate authority on truth because it is the truth. And you see that the God who makes promises in his word keeps them. Be encouraged by the example. Be encouraged by the example of those who've gone before. We think, oh, I'm waiting. We think it's hard. It's true. It's true. I'm waiting and it's hard. It's true. It's normal. My dear friends, it's normal. And God will keep his promises to you. You will receive the promises. Be encouraged. Keep going. Don't put your hope somewhere else. Next way God encourages his people. He wants you to see his purpose. So in this, in this next section, you see it in verse 13. You see it later in 16. The author of Hebrews is, you know, he knows his Bible. He has thought about his Bible. And he, he shows us amazing observations from the Old Testament over and over again. 
And he notes here in the story of God with Abraham that God didn't just promise something to Abraham. God made an oath on his own promise. And you and I, we might read that and just shoot right along. The author of Hebrews, he sits there and he, he sucks on this. He ponders this and he hold on here. There is something here. And so he brings out this idea of an oath. Verse 16, he says, people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So it's just interesting. Why do we, why do we make oaths, sincere covenantal promises? Or, or why do we draw up contracts, right? There's like a level of agreement, yes, I'll do this, and then there's like, pinky swear, you know? No, really, I promise. An oath. You realize oaths are only necessary because of our weakness, Right? Wouldn't it be great to live in a world where you don't need contracts, oaths, and deep promises? Simply because if somebody said they would do something, they would do it. One day, heaven will be like that. That is not the way it is today. Amen. It's not the way it is today. One consequence of our fall into sin was the death of integrity. The death of integrity. We simply do not believe or tell the truth of God to God, of to others, of to ourselves. And so we need something like oaths. And as we think of God making an oath, I just thought it's important to remember how seriously God takes oaths. Uncomfortably seriously. Uh, look at Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4 to 6. Ecclesiastes 5. Four to six. When you pay a vow to God, or when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in. What, what did he just call us? Pay what you vow. Verse five. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into what? Sin. Friends, it is a sin to make a commitment and not keep it. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger, oh, it's a mistake. <laughs> Ouch. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the works of your hands? You just realize you made a commitment. God was listening. I remember the day I got married. I remember. And yes, I was happy and joyful. And I was scared. Because this woman who I love walked down the aisle. You know what I was thinking about? It was as if I heard a voice saying, I'm listening. I'm listening. And I'm going to hear what you're about to say. And God is not a fan of when people do not keep their commitments. Because of who he is. As our text says, it is impossible for God to lie. He cannot lie. You ever heard the, the you know, childhood philosophy on God 101? Is there anything God can't do? How can he be God? You know, can he make a rock he can't lift? Conundrum? Not really. But here's something God can't do because he hates it. He can't lie. He will never lie. 
He always tells the truth, which is why truth is so important to his people, which is why it's so important that we should be repenting of any time we are less than faithful and untrue. Jesus said, I am the truth. All that's to just set up how big this is when God makes an oath. God's not toying around. He's just like, oh, I'll throw this out there. No, he's so serious about his oath. It's a big deal when God makes an oath. And so he does. He made an oath to Abraham. I'll bless you. And then up in verse 13, the author says, When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. I think we get that. When you, when you really make an oath or something, you, you swear by something greater yourself. Uh, and, and that's because we're fallible and weak. So I don't know. I, I swear on my mother's grave. Public officials still, what do they do? They put their hand on the Bible. Have mercy. Have mercy on the one who put his or her hand on the Bible without meaning to keep that promise. But what's God going to swear by? You know, the Old Testament oath was as the Lord lives, because you swear, you swear by the highest thing there is, the reality of who our God is. But what's God going to swear by? There's, there's nothing higher. So he swears by himself, and this blows me away. Because you realize, friends, when he makes a promise to you, and then he takes an oath that he will keep that promise, he is saying, I will stake my godness on my faithfulness to you. In other words, if I don't keep this promise, I'll resign from being God. It's as if I'm not God. I'm staking my name on this promise to you. And if you know the God of the Bible, he does everything for the glory of his name. Listen, he, he does not give his glory to another. He does not besmirch his own name. And so I'll just tell you, you have never been in a safer room or a safer place than if God makes a promise to you based on his own name. He'll keep the promise. And at some point, it doesn't even depend on you anymore. Who has a higher, who has a higher stake in the glory of God's name? Who's more passionate about the glory of God's name, you or God? God. And if God says, I swear by my own name, I will do this for you, it's done. It's done. So so the author brings up these two things to encourage you from God's encounter with Abraham. Number one, he makes a promise and he can't lie. And number two, he takes an oath on himself based on that promise. There's just no way God's not keeping this. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? Look at verse 17. So encouraging. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, and just pause, that's you. If you put your faith in Jesus, that's you. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of of his purpose. Show more convincingly. What does that mean? What does that mean? Have you ever tried to really convince someone of something? Uh, what did you do non-verbally? What, what did you do? Did you, did you grab their hands? Did you look at them in the eye? Did you say something like, hey, listen? Did you, did you pull them near? No, listen. I want to... I I want to show you convincingly, this is what God is doing for me and you right now as we encounter this passage. 
Now look, look at me. Look at my eye. That's what God's saying. Look at how unchangeable my purpose is for you. Never wavered on my purpose for you. I've never gone back and forth on my purpose for you. I've never said, well, I don't know. Never once. It's unchangeable because he's made a promise. He makes an oath on that promise. He wants to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose so that, look at the end of 18, we who have fled for refuge might have, what does he want you to have? Strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. Will your faith almost become sight because you're, you're just absolutely sure God's good for it. I'm absolutely sure God's faithful to me. That's what he wants you to be. Have strong encouragement. Friends, what, what is his purpose for his people? We could go on and on about that all day long, couldn't we? Look at Psalm 65, verse 4. Give you an Old Testament version. Psalm 65, verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be what? Satisfied in the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. What's God promising you? You're going to be blessed. You're going to be happy, deeply happy in him. You've been chosen. You've been brought near to him. He's not keeping you at a distance. And he's going to satisfy you. Oh, yeah. You know, you, you get on Yelp to look at a restaurant, right? And you're like, four and a half stars. Oh, this was great. You know, and you, and you go try it. Have you ever gone to try it and been like, nah, it wasn't that great? Wasn't that great? Friends, do you think anyone trusts God and then is brought into the presence of God or receives the promises of God? Do you think anyone goes, ah, it's not that great? Do you think anyone, do you think that happens to anyone? Or do you think everybody is more satisfied than they can possibly imagine? Where, where when we see it, when we taste it, we'll literally jump up and down and scream together and hug each other like little girls at a party because we're so just, ah, it was so much better than I ever could comprehend, and look, we have it now. That's God's purpose for you. Or I'll say it another way in the New Testament language, Ephesians 2, 7. This is God's purpose. So then the coming ages, I like that word ages, because right now we're in an age, and an age is a long time. In the coming ages, it's just going on and on. He might show, what does he want to show? The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. How sweet will that be? And that's his unchangeable purpose for you. Unchangeable. So you should have strong encouragement. We who have run, did you hear what he said? We who have fled for refuge. What's it mean to flee for refuge? It's exactly what I was talking about in the beginning. Faith, truth, hope. Faith says, I'm running to the God of the Bible and his promises for me. That's the truth on which I stand, who Christ is and what he's done, and he is my hope. When you run to him like that, now he's your refuge. 
And like I said earlier, God takes it personally when you take him as your refuge. Look at Psalm 16.1. Psalm 16.1. Preserve me, O God. So he's, he's, asked, he's making a request. Preserve me in my trouble, O God. For, and when you have language like that, it's the author saying, so here's the reason, God, you should preserve me. Here's the reason you should help me. Here's the motivation for you, O God, on why you should come to my aid. And what's the reason God should come and help the author? For in you I take refuge. I'm banking on you. And so the author knows that God is always passionate about the glory of his name. And he will never let down anyone who takes refuge in him. Preserve me, O God, I take refuge in you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Mm. Be encouraged. We're called to put all our hope in Christ. We have encouragement from the example. People have gone before. Abraham, faith, faith and patience, they receive the promise. Then we have encouragement from God showing us his purpose, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He tells the truth, he's even sworn by himself, He's going to keep his promises to us. Now, the last one, the anchor. I love this. Look at verses 19 to 20. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I think the illustration of an anchor is just incredibly helpful. Think of ancient sailing. Okay, nowadays you can go on a cruise on this ginormous boat, and even a, a huge storm, you're not that worried about it. Although, I went on a cruise once with my family, and we couldn't do like three of the stops because of the storm and everything was falling over and hitting the floor. So you get the idea of what a storm can do. And then you think of these ancient, ancient sailors in their little boats. And it was a serious business to go out on those boats into the seas. And so the idea of water in the ancient world, this is true, the idea of water is chaos. It's terrifying. It's a... It's uncontrollable. It's unpredictable. And so with the, issue, with the illustration of an anchor, it's like saying life is like those untamable seas. That's what's in this illustration. Life in this world, in this age, it's like that untamable sea. It's the chaos of the water. Yeah, sometimes it's, it's, it's slick like glass, and it's beautiful, and it's fun and easy. And other times, you don't think you're going to make it. You're not going to make it. And so there's the danger. There's the danger of that storm, right, that's just going to pummel you. And there's also the danger of the current. And that theme is in the book of Hebrews. Make sure you don't drift, right? What do you have to do to drift? Nothing. <laughs> you just drift, distracted, away from Christ. So this, this picture of this life in this world, this water. And then there's this anchor, okay? So what does the anchor do? The anchor goes where you can't go. I can't get down there, but the anchor can. It goes where you can't go, and down there where you can't go, it finds something that you know is there but you can't see, usually. And then it, there, far out of your reach, this anchor grabs onto something immovable and firm. It's grabbing onto something immovable and firm, and you can't grab onto that thing immovable and firm, but you can grab onto your anchor which grabs onto the thing that's immovable and firm. And so now, through the anchor and that foundation, all the change in that water, it can't drag you away anymore. 
This is stronger now than the water. Wow. And we have an anchor. Not for every single circumstance. It's not a promise that you can tame the water. But we have an anchor for the soul. That's right on that deep core self, your mind, your heart. We have an anchor for the soul, and it's sure and steadfast. This is not an anchor that breaks. It doesn't slip. It doesn't come undone. It is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's worthy of your faith. It won't break. And through this anchor, we're tied to the place we could never ourselves go. The place that is the most stable, immovable, unshakable thing in the universe. Where does this anchor connect you to? It's the very presence and throne of God himself. Talk about unshakable. Do you remember studying Revelation? And before the throne of God, all the water was like a sea of glass. I think part of what that was about was that all the chaos of this life, which for us is like hurricanes and raging storms and dangerous currents, all that to him is like smooth as silk because he's in control. He's in control. And that's where we're anchored. And so you see here at the end of 16, this hope, our anchor, our anchor is our hope. But do you see how important this is? The anchor is the hope. How important is it the boat has an anchor? So important. How important is it that you have the right hope? It's so important to put your hope in Christ. We have a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. Now, the audience of this letter, they would have known exactly what the author's talking about. And, and some of you probably know it too. What's he referring to? What's the inner place behind the curtain? It's the Holy of Holies in the temple. The Holy of Holies in the temple. It was, it was the place in the Old Covenant where the presence of God was was, was like centrally located. And because God is so holy and so set apart and so glorious, do you remember? No one gets to go in there except once a year the high priest. And even then we are told he will wear bells and have a rope tied around his ankle in case his exposure to the holy God kills him. You can't go in there. And that's just a symbol of the real thing. The holy throne of God, you can't go in there. How can you and me go in there? Just looking at the law of God we've seen in this passage that he is deadly serious about integrity. Integrity, about you keeping your word. If that's the only law we had in the whole Bible, and that's all we're thinking about today, how many of you would go to heaven based on your keeping of that law? We're all toast. We deserve God's judgment. How do we go in there? Well, don't you see? We have a great high priest. That's what the next chapter is all about. We have a great high priest. And as we've seen from this book, Jesus came for us in full solidarity, just like us, truly human, with us, for us. And he lived the perfect life of obedience, completely pleasing to the Father 
never told a lie, never flaked on a commitment, kept his promise even to the point of death on a cross where he died as a substitute for our sins, which means two things for us. Number one, he knows what it's like to be tempted in every way and to suffer. Do you remember? He sympathizes. He knows the pain, the uncertainty of the water. He feels for you in it. And more than that, he has made propitiation for your sin. Remember that word? The substitutionary atonement where on the cross he took himself what you deserve for your lack of integrity, what I deserve for my rebellion. Jesus took it for me, for you personally, by name, in detail. And he rose from the dead in victory and he ascended to the presence of God where he sits at the right hand of the Father and he has now gone where we could never go. And now because he has gone there, where are we invited to come even with confidence? We saw that, right? Now we can go with confidence to the throne because it's now a throne of grace. Well, how could we go with confidence? This blows me away. The high priest of Israel could only go once a year to the symbol. And now you and me can go any and every time we want to the reality because of our priest. As the text said, he's the forerunner. He's the forerunner. What's a forerunner? The forerunner is the one who goes first in order to pave the way and then take you where he has gone. He goes first to pave the way and then take you where he has gone. Why can you come to the throne? Because Jesus, your brother, has brought you there. Jesus, your priest, has named you there. Jesus, your Savior, has bought your seat there. Jesus, your Lord, says, here is where you belong. He's gone first. He's gone into the presence of God. He will bring us there as well. That's the anchor for the soul. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Do you have him as your anchor? Do you enjoy him as your anchor? Faith, truth, and hope. Faith, that act of the mind and the heart to trust. Repent of your sin and trust yourself to Jesus. A wonderful, beautiful, glorious high priest. Truth, what's your truth? This is the truth. Look to Christ and who he is from the authority of God's word. Put your faith in this truth and then realize you have the greatest hope there is. You have the greatest hope there is in Christ. You will certainly be saved and satisfied in him. So friends, as we go from here, we know our hope is not ultimately in every circumstance of this life working out. Amen? Don't kid yourself. That's not the hope. Does God answer our prayers? Yeah. Does God help and heal? Yeah. And will you get sick and die one day? Yes. And will your investments be foolish sometimes? Yes. Don't put your hope in your circumstances. Our hope is not in ourselves and our own wisdom and goodness. Amen? Don't fool yourself. 
Our hope is in a person. Our hope is in the person, the person of Jesus, who is with us now by his spirit and will be with us forever and will take us to where he is. He's our hope, always. He's our anchor, always. So are the storms going to come? Yes. And you know what we say? Let them come. Be merciful and gentle. Little storms as much as possible. Let them come. We have the anchor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your promises. Lord, we need to be encouraged. I just pray that everyone who hears this in this room or at home, uh, online, or later on, they would hear your voice and be encouraged, that, that our hearts would be stirred up, our minds would be stirred up to put our hope in Jesus. Where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? Who is this good? Who is this faithful? Who is this true? Lord, put our hopes in Jesus. For anybody who doesn't know you today, Lord, let them let become a Christian today as you bring them to, to trust in Christ. Let them just awaken to this anchor and cling to him. For those of us who are your people already, Lord, encourage us. We get tired. We drift. We look away. Encourage us to cling to Christ and the hope that is found in him. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your kindness, the oath you've made. We believe you that you'll keep your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.